0: I'm willing to venture a guess that everybody in this room over the age of 20 has heard the term money talks at some point in your life. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you've used it, maybe you know exactly where it comes from and then it's entirely possible that you have never studied it out to see where it comes from. Well, let me give you just a little bit of background. In the year 500 BC, now I'm going to stop here for just a second and go on a tirade, so just go with me. BC means before Christ. Before Christ. We have always used the things of God to mark time. B.C. means before Christ. A.D. means Anno Domini or the year of our Lord, meaning the time since Christ. Well, there is a current movement afoot to change those meanings or to change those letters because supposedly they offend a certain group of people in our society. So today, instead of BC, you see BCE, which means before current era. And then for AD, you see CE, which means current era. I am a rebel in this regard, and I refuse. I refuse to do that because a few people might be offended. That just seems ridiculous to me. We have always used the things of God to mark time, and there is no reason for us to change. So when you see those things today, if you've been wondering what BCE is or CE, that's exactly what's going on. It's a politically correct move. You don't have to move with it. And I encourage you to not. So let's just go back to what we're talking about, though. In the year 500 B.C., before Christ, a philosopher named Euripides started this whole idea of money talks. He made this statement, with money comes influence. That was 500 years before the time of Christ. A thousand years after that, another philosopher named Erasmus would continue that thought on by saying that not only does influence come with money, but so does power, and he referred to it as the talking power of money. In the year 1900, the term money talks would be coined, meaning power and influence always follow those that have money. And a lot of people bought into that. Over the course of the last hundred years, though, it has morphed a little bit again. With money comes happiness. And that happiness is a direct result, this is society's belief, that happiness comes through our ability to purchase things. The more things we have, the happier we are. The better our things are, the higher standing in society we have. That's just kind of the current philosophy of money talks. And really, a whole number of people, a whole lot of people have bought into that. There's an anonymous author who's written these words about where society is at today. It's titled Mr. and Mrs. Thing. Listen to this. Mr. and Mrs. Thing are a very pleasant and successful couple. At least that's the verdict of most people who tend to measure success with a thingameter. When the thingameter is put to work in the life of Mr. and Mrs. Thing, the result is startling. There is Mr. Thing sitting down on a luxurious and very expensive thing, almost hidden by a large number of other things, things to sit on, things to sit at, things to cook on, things to eat from, all shiny and new, things, 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 things to clean with and things to wash with and things to clean and things to wash and things to amuse and things to give pleasure and things to watch and things to play, things for the long hot summer and things for short cold winter. Things for the big thing in which they live, and things for the garden, and things for the deck, and things for the kitchen, and things for the bedroom. And things on four wheels, and things on two wheels, and things to put on top of the four wheels, and things to pull behind the four wheels, and things to add to the interior of the thing on four wheels. Things, things, things. And there in the middle are Mr. and Mrs. Things, smiling and pleased as punch with things, thinking of more things to add to things, secure in their castle of things." And that really is the popular philosophy today. A lot of people live by it and they don't ever give it a second thought because money talks, things talk, possessions talk. Secular things tend to trump the spiritual when we get into financial issues. Thankfully, whoever wrote this didn't stop there. Listen to what they go on to say. Well, I just want you to know that your things can't last. They're going to pass. There's going to be an end of them. Oh, maybe an error in judgment, maybe a temporary loss of concentration, or maybe you'll just pass them on to the second-hand thing dealer, or maybe they'll wind up a mass of mangled metal being towed off to the thing yard. And what about the things in your house? Well, it's time for bed. Put out the cat, make sure you lock the door so some thing taker taker doesn't come and take your things. And that's the way life goes, doesn't it? And someday when you die, they only put one thing in the box. You. That's pretty pointed. It really is. It's very pointed and it is very true. The philosophy behind that, well, we do well to pay attention to it. The Bible backs a lot of that up, especially that last part, that at the end of the day, there's only one thing that matters. When we look back over life, there is only one thing that we should be looking for. What was our relationship with Christ? It's not a matter of how many things we accumulate. It's not a matter of how much money we have because really, in the end, it can't go in the box with you anyway. You're going to be the only one there. The Bible has some very distinct teaching about these issues. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We'll go to the book of James. James chapter 5. We've been studying through this book for several weeks now. We are getting close to wrapping it up. James chapter 5. Verse 1. James writes, Now listen, you rich people. Some of you are thinking, whew, sermon's not about me. <laughs> By most standards around the world today, everyone living in the United States of America is wealthy or rich. So pay attention. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Now, see the pointed teaching of this? James isn't mincing any words. In fact, among the teaching of the Bible, this is some of the most poignant. It is some of the most direct and has some of the most interesting teaching attached to it. And we're going to make our way through that. So let's just get into God's Word and we'll see where this takes us. Hopefully, we'll be able to wrap it all together. I want to start with a quote from Benjamin Franklin. Take a look at this. Money never made a man happy yet nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of it filling a vacuum, it creates one. If it satisfies one want, it doubles that want another way. This is a true proverb of the wise man, rely upon it. Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Again, that comes from Benjamin Franklin. Now, obviously, there at the end, he's quoting from the Bible. It comes from Proverbs chapter 15. Listen to it again. Better is little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. The book of Proverbs was written by Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. And by the way, he was a man of great wealth. He had a lot to say about money and what we do with it or how we gain it. So let's go into his book and just take a look at this. Proverbs is right in the middle of the Bible. If you go to the book of Psalms, turn right, one book, you'll be in Proverbs. We're going to start in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Now, in the teaching on money, the Bible would say that we have to pay attention to everything that's happening around us. We really should make provision for things that are to come. We really should be looking at trends in society and and planning for it. But one of the other things that we learn from the Bible is that most money is gained through work. It's gained through our effort. That's God's intention. We're still in the book of Proverbs. Just turn over to chapter 28, verse 19. He who works his land will have abundant food, but the one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. Now, see, right there, you can see this whole pattern that we're supposed to work to support ourselves. We're supposed to work to be able to buy food. That's God's design. But it's gotten messed up from all kinds of different dimensions over and over and over again. In fact, in the New Testament days, there were a group of people in the the city of Thessalonica that believed that Jesus was coming back during their lifetime. In fact, they believed he was coming back right away. So they quit their jobs. They sold everything they had and they did nothing but look heavenward, somewhat chasing the fantasies. They looked heavenward, expecting Jesus to come back in the clouds. Therefore, they didn't need to go to work. They just needed to be spiritually minded all the time. When their money ran out, they started asking the church to support them. When their money ran out, they expected other believers to cover their losses. So the apostle Paul had to correct their thinking and he did it with this teaching. If a man won't work... Don't let him eat. You see, that's the biblical principle. All the way back in the Old Testament to the New, we have this idea that we're supposed to work to support ourselves. That's God's design. Solomon himself would say that there is no greater thing than for a man to find satisfaction in his work. We're designed to work. We're designed to support ourselves. The Bible has other things to say, though, about this issue of money, particularly in the book of Proverbs. Let's go back to chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth, and he adds no trouble to it. Now, there are a lot of people that have taken this verse and made it the key one of all of Scripture that they hang their hat on financially. They forget about the work aspects. They forget about the faithfulness aspects. They forget about giving. They forget about everything else, and they just grab this passage. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth, and he adds no trouble to it. That is the birthplace of what's been referred to as the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel. A lot of those preachers and teachers say that God is just waiting to bless you. He is just waiting to open up the floodgates and pour down all of his goodness on you. Interestingly enough, Jesus himself would say, in this world, we have trouble. So they have a conflict right away. But these prosperity teachers and preachers say that blessing is there for you. All you have to do is wait for it. That's not the case. The Bible does not promise that. So if you're listening to to prosperity preachers, health and wealth preachers that tell you that God's just waiting to do this, be very careful. Be very discerning and be very concerned about what you're hearing because if all they're doing is preaching this passage packaged a different way over and over and over again, there's a problem. Now, in as much as we see some of this teaching in the Old Testament that we're supposed to work and God will bless it and God's blessings are there for us, we find some deeper teaching in the New Testament. We find some in the Old Testament as well, but some deeper teaching in the New Testament about money. Let's go there. The Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 19. Becky read from this passage just a few minutes ago. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now that's God's means of investing. That's how God wants us to do it. We're supposed to invest in eternal things, not just the secular things and certainly not just things. But we're supposed to invest in eternity pouring ourselves into the things that matter to God. That's true with your life, that's true with your time, and that's even true financially. That's how God wants us to see money. It can be an investment in the kingdom. It can be an investment in eternity and in eternal things. When we mess that up, when we don't pay attention to this, we find teaching along these lines. Luke chapter 6, verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. You see, when we mess up God's plan, we get ourselves in trouble. So the Bible says this, you enjoy all those good things on this earth right now. If that's where your heart is, you enjoy it all right now. Because when eternity comes, that's all you will have had. You've received your reward right here, and that's the only place you're going to get it. That's the type of teaching that a lot of people try to avoid. Now, that's not just speaking to those that have made mistakes. That's speaking to those that have prioritized money and things over God. That's speaking to people that have allowed money and things to become their God. Your reward is right here, and that's all you should expect. Now, there are some of you that are thinking and started thinking this just a few months ago when the sermon started. Oh, no. Preachers preaching on money. Why did we come today? We should have gone fishing. We should have gone someplace else. There's some folks who are thinking that's all preachers ever talk about is money. That's all churches ever talk about is money. That is not true at Libby Christian Church. Not at all. In fact, we tend to, to go to the opposite end of that and we seldom ever talk about money for this reason. Libby Christian Church excels at the grace of giving. We really do. The church as a whole, made up of the individuals, excels at the grace of giving. And it allows us to do some really cool things like swimming lessons on the parking lot. That happens because of the generosity of people in the church, camps that we support, change for a dollar. Just this last Thursday night, we had a change for a dollar event at Rose Hours where we were giving away gallons of milk and some unbelievable stories came out of that, the same as when we were taking care of some gas for people in June, and, and the stories that came out of that are remarkable. We get to do that because of the generosity of the people in this church and the graciousness that makes up Libby Christian. Church. Church. We get to support missions locally and nationally. We get to support missions globally. In a couple of weeks, in our Sunday school hour, one of my favorite missions that we support is going to be here Pioneer Bible Translators. I love this ministry. You know what they do? They send people into unreached people groups, into villages in the farthest reaches of the world. They send representatives of Pioneer Bible Translators to those places and ask them to live there until they learn the language because there is no school you can go to to learn the the languages and the dialects that these people speak. And once they know it, oftentimes takes 15 to 20 years. Once they know the language and they're familiar with it, they translate God's Word into their language so those people can hold the Bible in their own hands. That's a great ministry. And we get to support it and be a part of it because of the generosity of this church and the, the fact that everybody here excels in the grace of giving. So we don't stand up and say things like this, boy, if you don't give, we're going to have to shut things down. We, we don't do that. We don't stand up and say, you got to give more because if you don't, we're all in trouble. No, we're not. Because the church excels at the grace of giving and we've had the opportunity to live under God's blessing. When we talk about money, it's because it's in the text, just like it is right now, and it's what the Bible teaches. So we don't make apologies for it, we just want you to see what the Bible teaches about this whole idea of money. And the Bible has some pointed teaching. Some of it we've already looked at, let's take a look at some others. We'll go back to Matthew chapter 6. This is where Becky read just a few minutes ago. Listen to verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you're looking for a passage of Scripture to hang your financial hat on, this might be the perfect one. For where your treasure is, what you do with your money, there your heart will be also. It will become a reflection of your heart. What you do with your money, how you handle your money, will communicate a great deal about your life about your priorities, about what is important to you. We'll go back to the Gospel of Luke again. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 38. Given it will be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, in God's world of investing, He wants us to embrace generosity He wants us to understand that we're supposed to give, and the measure with which we give everything will be measured against us. The measure that we use when we are being generous is what's going to come back into our life. The blessings that you receive are proportional to the blessings that you give. That's just good biblical teaching. So pay attention to what you're doing with your finances. Even though we have teaching like this in Scripture, we still have immense traps that the enemy, Satan, the devil, places for us. And he uses this arena of life very possibly more than any other arena because it's easy. And he's very well practiced at it. He's good at what he does. And before we know it, we can move away from good, solid, biblical principles into things that are just an abomination to the Lord. And sometimes we get there without even knowing it. We don't even know how it happened. We just know we're there. Here's the best way I could illustrate that for you. When I was in Bible college, a group of us went to Corpus Christi, Texas, down to Padre Island. We were sitting in a dorm meeting, decided we needed a road trip, and none of us had ever been to Padre Island, so we thought we should go. We didn't work out any of the details, which was kind of a bad thing. Like, nobody figured out how far it was, how much it was going to cost, where we were going to sleep, what we were going to eat. We just thought a road trip sounded like a good time, and none of us had ever been there. So, we piled into a van, drove down to Corpus Christi. When we got onto Padre Island, we said, Well, where are we going to spend the night? Somebody had the bright idea that we should sleep on the beach. Sounded like a really great idea. Problem was, it's illegal. So, they came and explained to us the legalities of sleeping on the beach at Padre Island, and the gracious officer allowed us to go. The next night, we thought we'd found a spot where you could sleep. Nope, they came back and and explained to us again why we couldn't be there. The van we were in broke down. All kinds of different things happened. But when we actually got to the beach, we we discovered that we were right on the edge of a storm coming up out of the Gulf of Mexico, and it had created riptides at Padre Island. So we thought to ourselves, innocently enough, well, gosh, we're here. We might as well go out and get in the water and swim and have a good time. So we did. Everybody's in the water. We're just bobbing up and down, enjoying ourselves. The view was wonderful. The sun's beating down on us. It was late spring, so we were really looking forward to this after a tough winter in Kansas. And then all of a sudden, somebody said, hey, look how far we are from the shore. We'd been caught up in the riptide and it had pulled us out into the ocean. I'm a pretty strong swimmer, so I started swimming and, and kicked my way back in. A couple other guys came with us. It was no problem at all, but some of the other guys were really struggling. They'd gotten caught up in that tide and pulled out to a place where they were not safe and they couldn't get back. Once they finally did, they were laying on the sand like lizards in the sun, just trying to breathe and recover. It was all they could do to make it back. Well, financially, the same thing happens to us. A lot of people get caught up in financial riptides. You're bobbing along, thinking you're doing okay, and then all of a sudden you realize that you're a long ways from safety. You're a long ways from shore. It happens in business dealings where we are bobbing along, doing everything we're supposed to, and then all of a sudden we're presented with an opportunity that's a little bit shady, just looks a little bit off, but we take the opportunity, and then we realize we're a long ways from safety. Happens for other people just in bad choices that they make by not managing money at all. They're bobbing along thinking they're doing okay, but they're robbing Peter to pay Paul. But before they know it, they're out too far from shore and they can't get back. So you kick for all you're worth and and you hope that you can get there doing whatever it takes to get there. But you find yourself in trouble. And the struggle to make it back to shore, the struggle to get back to where you're safe is overwhelming at times. You see, financial riptides are there. If we're not careful in watching out for them, they are there to grab us, to pull us away from safety, to drown us, to destroy us. And the consequences of them are unbelievable. I don't know if this is the, the place in the sermon to put this, but it seems right to me, so I'm just going to throw it in. There are two things that we can do that help us fight against this. The first is to pray. And the second is to practice disciplines. Prayer and discipline comes together to help us avoid spiritual riptides all the time. And it works not only in the financial realm, it works in every other realm as well. Think about it. If your struggle is not with money, but it's with lust, you pray about that struggle, you confess it to God, you ask for His strength to overcome it, and then you learn how to bounce your eyes. If that means staying off the computer, if that means when you're walking down the street, you have to keep your eyes in certain places, then that's what you do. That's the discipline that is necessary. You pray and you practice the disciplines. If your struggle isn't with lust or with money, maybe it's with lying, you have to do the same thing. You confess it to God, you tell God what's going on in your life, you ask Him for strength, and then you keep yourself out of situations where lying and manipulating is going to be the natural reaction for you. If that's your struggle, you have to discipline yourself away from it. Maybe your struggle is with gossip. If that's the case, you pray about it, you confess it to God, you ask Him for His strength, and then you avoid those situations where you're going to gossip. Maybe it happens at work and people are just standing around talking about other people and you innocently get sucked into it. The riptide is there and it pulls you out. And you're in dangerous territory. So you talk to God about it and then you discipline yourself to stay away from those situations. Those two things have to come together. More often than not, what we want to do is just pray about it. Well, I talked to God about it, and this is the way it all played out. This is the way everything happened, and therefore, if I talked to God about it, and I got myself in this trouble, there's actually a group of people that would say, then God ordained it. Well, that's not the case. You just didn't do what you were supposed to do. Stop blaming God. That's the way that works. You have to accept responsibility for it, and if you want to change it, pray about it, and apply the discipline necessary to change it. There's an old Indian proverb that's really good. I wish this came from the Bible. That's how good it is. It didn't come from the Bible. This is an Indian proverb, but you may want to write it down. Here you go. They say, call on the Lord and then row away from the rocks. Call on the Lord and then row away from the rocks. That's good medicine. You pray about it, And then row away from the rocks. If you know you're headed into dangerous territory, do whatever it takes to row away from the rocks. Get out there into safety. Get away from the places that you shouldn't be. That's what James is teaching. He's teaching us to call on the Lord and then row away from the rocks. And he is directing it to a group of people that really, really need to hear it. James chapter 5, you heard what they were doing. They were making their money off of the backs of other people. They were shorting people in their wages. They were cheating people. They were doing whatever it took to build their own financial portfolios. That's what was happening. The rocks were in front of them. By the way, James was writing to Christians. These people should have known better, but they didn't. This practical book lines out so many parts of our life. Right now, he's addressing this financial part. They should have known better. The rocks were in front of them, and they got sucked into it. The riptide caught them and pulled them out. And they just started doing things that were horrendous. Well, in today's world, we still have people doing the same thing. They're trying to make money off the backs of other people. They're cheating them. They're not paying their bills. They're not doing the things that they're taught to do in Scripture. They're using other people, and they're certainly not practicing biblical generosity just in the name of trying to build their own portfolio, and they feel better about it. They feel like what they're doing is right Because God's going to bless me, and He is. If other people want to be blessed, they can do things themselves. It becomes this incredibly selfish mentality that forgets all godliness. When selfishness kicks in that way, my friends, we're in trouble. We are in trouble. And one of the best places that we can guard against that type of thinking is in our finances. And it really does work. Now, I want to show you, some deep teaching out of James chapter 5. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that this is the shallow end of the pool or that this is an easy trail to follow. It's not. This is the deep end of the pool, and it is a steep trail. But it is interesting teaching. My goodness, is it interesting teaching. Let's go back to James chapter 5. I'm going to read those six verses for you one more time. Here we go. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. "'Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. "'Your gold and silver are corroded. "'Their corrosion will testify against you "'and eat your flesh like fire. "'You have hoarded wealth in the last days. "'Look, the wages you failed to pay "'the workmen who mowed your fields "'are crying out against you. "'The cries of the harvesters "'have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. "'You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. "'You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. "'You have condemned and murdered innocent men.' who are not opposing you. When I opened up my Bible last week to James chapter 5, it was a Monday morning. I always start working on the, the next week's sermon, either Sunday evening or on Monday morning. In this particular case, it happened to be Monday morning. I saw the, the subject matter and had read through this several times. And then I just said, Lord, I don't want to preach your average message on money. I want you to show me something I've not seen before. And God did. He showed me some things out of these six verses that... Honestly, and I'm just being open with you, I had never noticed before and I had never thought about before. Here it is. Your money will judge you. What you do with your money will bring testimony either against you or for you. I have never seen that before. Not ever in Scripture had I seen that before. And my mind has been chasing ping pong balls all week long trying to make sense of this, because it's a teaching in Scripture that, like I said, is not easy. It's not the shallow end of the pool. It's not an easy trail. It's the deep end of the pool. It's steep. You have to really be holding on to to chase this whole thing out. But when you do, you find some truly interesting things. In the realm of interpretation, there are laws that you use for interpreting the Bible. I used two of them in this study. The first one is called the Law of First mention. When you come across something very difficult in Scripture and you don't know what to do with it, maybe you've seen it for the first time, this is the best place to begin. You simply go back to the first place that you can find anything like it in Scripture and you study it out from that point forward. That's the law of first mention. So if you find something that is really difficult and you can't find it in another place in Scripture, the law of first mention, then you just let it go. Don't worry about it. The second law is called the law of two or three witnesses. When you find something difficult in Scripture, not only do you look for the first place it's mentioned, but you look for two or three other passages that will back it up. And if you can find two or three other backing up passages or witnesses, then you know that you have something you're supposed to pay attention to. So on Monday morning when this first captured my attention and I found myself saying, I- I've never seen this before, that money will testify either against us or for us, I knew that I was going to have to use some interpretive laws to figure the whole thing out. And that's exactly what I did. Here's what I discovered. There is precedent for this. There is precedent for this. It's found in Genesis. Let's go back there. Genesis chapter 4. Now what I was looking for was inanimate objects, non-sentient objects, non-thinking objects that are going to be able to testify or bring any type of witness, either for or against an individual. Here's what I found. Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. The Lord said, "'What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground.'" That was God speaking to Cain after he had killed his brother Abel. His statement was this, Abel's blood is crying out to me. There's the law of first mention, and there's the law of two or three witnesses. Both of them come together in one verse. Inanimate, non-sentient beings bringing witness or testimony. So that left me going through all kinds of other things, and I landed in this place. There are two judgments that await us. Not us necessarily, but society. The first one is called the Great White Throne Judgment. It's found in Revelation chapter 20. It is there for non-believers. You can read Revelation chapter 20 on your own anytime you want. You'll see it, Great White Throne Judgment. It's just as plain as the nose on your face. It's there for non-believers, people that have not accepted Christ. It determines eternity for them. And the truth is, if a person has not accepted Jesus Christ, eternity will be spent in hell. That's the end result. That's the Great White Throne Judgment. But there is another judgment called the judgment seat of Christ. We find that teaching in the book of 2 Corinthians. Turn over there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ is not a salvation judgment. It is a works judgment judgment, where your works are judged by God. And according to James, your money will be there. Your money will be there. And it will bring testimony either for you or against you. Isn't that an interesting teaching? The judgment seat of Christ, James was writing to Christians, they should have known better. At the judgment seat of Christ, your money will be there. Now, some of you might say, Phil, how does that work? Help us understand this. And here's my honest, true answer for you. I have absolutely no idea. But God put it in the Bible, and we better pay attention. And maybe He didn't tell us how it works because He wanted us to accept on faith. Maybe He didn't give us all the details so that we'll simply look at it and and understand that, that we really do need to surrender and allow God to transform every dimension of our life, including the financial dimension. So Lord, transform me. Because when the time comes that I stand before you, and my money is bringing witness, I want to make sure that it's bringing a witness for me, not against me. Does that make sense? (laughs) That was not a very rousing yes. (laughs) I told you, this is not the easy stuff. It really isn't. It is some of the deep teaching of the Bible, but we better pay attention to it. If we want to row away from the rocks, we want to do more than just call on God financially. We want to row away from the rocks. There are some things that can help. There really are. I want to give you 10 of them this morning and some scripture that's attached to it. We'll leave them up on the screen long enough for you to be able to write these down if you want to check it all out. I did not compile this list. This comes from Ron Blue and Larry Burkett. So I want to make sure that they get credit for what they've done. But here are 10 principles that will help you row away from the rocks. Number one evaluate your motives. It comes from the book of Psalms, which simply means with everything that you do financially, ask yourself why you're doing it. Evaluate your motives. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? Why am I paying this? Why am I paying that? Why am I? And that's the main question. Evaluate your motives. Number two, run the numbers often. Burkett believes or believed, he has since passed away, that we need to know where every dollar goes. That way, we can be accountable for it. That way, we know what we're doing with our money, good or bad. So he says, run the numbers often. Pay attention to every dollar that goes out of your house so that you know what's happening with it. Number three, consider what your use of money says about your relationship with Christ. That's quite interesting. It really is. What does your use of money Communicate about your relationship with Jesus. Number four, avoid get-rich-quick mentalities. That's just good teaching. Some of the things that that we're seeing in society today are a number of people that are trying to bilk the elderly out of their money, and they do so through get-rich-quick schemes. So there's a group of counselors that teach that if you're going into an older person's home, be it your parents or maybe a neighbor that you're taking care of, whatever the case might be, look closely at the mail. Pay real close attention to the mail that's been opened. If you see some of those get-rich-quick offers that are coming through the postal system, get involved and try to snatch them from that fire. Number five, give to the needs of others. Again, one of the great things about the church is it allows us to do that on a much larger scale than we could ever do on our own. Cool things happen when we do that. It's just biblical economics. I'm not saying that it's worldly economics. I'm saying it's biblical economics. When you get generous, remember your generosity is measured by your heart, and the generosity that is poured back into your life is based on the same measure that you used in giving to other people. So make sure that you're giving to the needs of others. Number six. Never cosign a loan or act as surety for others. Good teaching. Number seven avoid indulgences. Simply put, it means that if you're living in an extravagant lifestyle and you cannot afford that extravagant lifestyle, you're in trouble. So be careful of the indulgences, the extravagances that you bring into your life because they tend to be one of the biggest drains, not only of your money, but of your motives. So avoid indulgence. Number eight, Prepare for decreases, Philippians chapter 4 teaches that, so does the book of Genesis. Joseph taught us that we need to be prepared for things that are coming, that's the whole point behind savings accounts and rainy day investment. Number 9, seek godly counsel, if you are struggling today with financial issues Find godly people that can show you what the Word of God says about how to fix those problems, how to make your way through those struggles. Seek godly counsel that it might bring about number 10. Seek God's peace. You see, if the financial things in your life have really eroded to a point that you are stressed about it all the time, and you are worried about it, and you are anxious about it, then you need God's peace to come and rest on you. And the only way you could do that is through following the principles of the Bible and finding godly people that will pray with you and talk with you through the whole thing. And then God's peace comes to rest on you. In today's world, worry and anxiety is an overwhelming thing. And do you know what the number one cause of worry and anxiety is in America today? Money and finances. So seek God's peace so that you avoid the riptides so that you avoid the rocks and you can row away from them instead of getting smashed in them. Because the devil, the enemy, wants to pull you out into dangerous territory. He wants to drown you. And this is one of the easiest ways to do it. Fight against it. Call on the Lord and row away from the rocks. So that when the time comes, you'll be able to stand before God and hear Him say what every believer wants to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. A lot of times we think that that's a one-dimensional statement, that it only has to do with us believing in Him, but it, it isn't. It's multidimensional. We want to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant, in every aspect of your life, in every way, shape, means, or form. And we know this, there's going to be different dimensions that are testifying either for you or against you. So if you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, it's necessary. It's necessary. For us to apply the biblical principles in this arena as well as many others. But if we don't, there's an even deeper consequence here, and I want you to see it right at the end of the passage we read in James 5. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. That is an interesting verse to be tucked away in the middle of this discussion. And it can leave our minds reeling thinking, well, how is it that in the middle of this discussion about money that now we're talking about murder, now we're talking about condemning other people? What's that about? Well, here's the way it applies in this application. If we do not embrace all the teaching of the Bible about finances, we set the church up, we set Christians up for one of the most popular accusations in today's world to be leveled against us, and to be leveled against the church. Church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. Churches are full of a bunch of people that say one thing, but then when it, it comes down to it, they do something totally different. And people watch your finances to see if that's true. If you're the person that is constantly saying that you believe in the Lord and God has so blessed you, but you're ripping other people off, what do you think you're doing? You are condemning them into this whole idea that the church is just full of hypocrites and Christians can't be trusted. That's the way that works. One of the the greatest heartaches for me today is to hear Christians say things like this. I'd rather do business with non-Christians than Christians. And there are a lot of Christian businessmen and women that say things like that. Your money's already given testimony against you, and it's bringing testimony against the kingdom of God. So we have to think about what we do financially Whether you're in business or whether it's dealing with your own business or whether you are operating within somebody else's business. You don't want to condemn anybody else to a battle or a struggle that they're going to have to overcome. You want to hear the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Sadly enough, a lot of people are going to stand before God and He's going to say, hmm, so what? It has nothing to do with your salvation. God's going to say, come on in. This is yours. My son paid the price. But none of the rest is there for you because you did nothing with it. Start with this part of your life and see what happens. Just see what happens. That your money might bring testimony for you, not against you. That's what we're shooting for. Deep teaching from the Bible. No question about it. I didn't write it. I'm just preaching it. But it's powerful. It's powerful. We need to pay attention to it and see if it can transform our lives. It's a good starting point. After we've accepted Jesus Christ, this is just a good starting point. See what happens. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Well, Father in heaven, this uh, this is a difficult message. It's a difficult message to preach. It's a difficult message to hear. But it's good. Good to preach it and it's good to hear it. Certainly good to study it see what the Bible has to say. Father, you have made faith so practical. If we'll just look at it the right way and live it the right way, you've given us direction. You've given us answers. You've shown us what we're supposed to do. Lord, just help us do it. James would say that. Once we know the right thing to do, we just need to do it. So, Lord, help us do it. I know today that some of us have been challenged. Some of us have been convicted Others have been stretched, and some people scratch their heads on this for a while. But I pray that you'll make everything clear to those that are confused. To those that are convicted, I pray that you will change some patterns. To those that have been stretched and challenged, I pray, Lord, that you'll continue to do that for us. That we might someday stand before you and, and hear you say, well done. That's our goal, Lord. That's our goal. So help us get there. In Jesus' name. Amen.